So today we are continuing in the book of Amos. Uh, for those of you who have been here for the last several weeks, we've been making our way through uh, Amos. And as I've mentioned, uh, for the sake of those who may be our first time with us or online or in the room, Amos was a prophet whom the Lord had sent to the kingdom of Israel during the time of the, the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. It's about 750 years before Christ. And he was sent to warn the kingdom of Israel that God was running out of patience. He was running out of patience with three main issues. The corruption of justice, the exploitation of the weak economically, as well as through the issues of justice, and idolatry where the people of Israel were engaging in worship of other gods and other ways of expressing idolatry. And it's important to understand that these things had been going on for a long time. They had actually been going on for a couple hundred years when Amos comes on the scene. Sometimes people read the Old Testament, they, they say, well, God is mean in the Old Testament, like he's some kind of short-tempered toddler that just kind of has a temper tantrum and starts breaking things when things aren't going his way. But the truth is, it had been a long, long time. And God had sent prophets. He had sent people to the, both the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, and also to them when they were together, to try and warn them away from these, these issues of economic injustice, uh, political injustice, idolatry, all these things that were going on. Everything that went against what the prophet Micah talked about when he said, the Lord requires of thee to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, Israel and Judah were walking in the exact different direction. But the problem was, and I've mentioned this also before, one of the main difficulties that the prophet Amos was facing during this time is that it was a time where the kingdom of Israel and Judah were both at their height economically, they were at their height militarily, they were at their height with their cultural influence, they were the most stable, and prosperous nations in that area at the time. So by every measure, they were doing well. By every measure. In fact, they were doing so well that it was inconceivable to them that in just a few decades, the northern kingdom of Israel would cease to exist altogether. They would be wiped out by the Assyrians. And in 150 years following that, the kingdom of Judah would be wiped out, conquered by the Babylonians, and they would disappear off the map altogether. However, the storm clouds were gathering. It was going to be happening whether or not the kingdom of Israel was willing to acknowledge it or not. And this is one reason why Amos is considered a true prophet, because everything he said came to pass. So let's pick it up in Amos chapter 7. And this is a place where he's again warning Israel, but he, it's an interesting little twist, and we'll take a look at it. Let's read it together. It says this. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. So this is Amos speaking. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, and just as the second crop was coming up, when they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive how can Jacob survive? He's so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. The sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. 
it dried up the great deep and devoured the land. And then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb. Not talking about the fruit there. He's talking about the, the measuring apparatus called a plumb line, which is in the picture there. It's a string with the, with the weight at the bottom. With a plumb line in his hand, and the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, Look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the, the name of the first king of the northern king of Israel and also the name of the current king in the time of Amos, Jeroboam II. It's an interesting passage here because the Lord begins by talking about these great and sort of dramatic things that were going to happen. A swarm of locusts would come through and, and Amos cries out for mercy. And it's interesting how he cries out for mercy. He keeps saying, Jacob is so small. In other words, they just can't, they can't withstand the wrath and the fury of God. So God says that dramatic thing isn't going to happen. Then he says, you know, I'm going to destroy it with, by fire. The great deep, I'm assuming like the ocean or the lakes will dry up. The land will be burned. And again, Amos says, but Jacob's so small. Have mercy on, the, on, on him. And God says, well, this won't happen either. And then God does something different. He takes a very quiet approach. And this isn't the only time he does this in the scripture. There's this passage when uh, uh, Elijah is in a cave and he's all bummed out because uh, he feels like everything is going against him and God isn't there. And it says, you know, the, he, he's told to go stand outside and, and God comes in a, uh, the voice of God. Well, he sees a whirlwind come. Then he sees fire come. He says the voice of God isn't there. But then there's a still small whisper that comes into his heart and asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? In the same way, God has these dramatic things he's threatening with. But what he says to Amos, he says, this is really what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something simple. I'm going to set up a simple, straight truth and measure Israel by it. And in this simple, kind of quiet way of setting truth, we will see, this is God speaking, whether or not Israel is living along the lines of righteousness that God has put into place. And we already know the answer. Were they living along the guides of righteousness that God was putting into place? No. And this is what will cause them to be destroyed. A destruction of their own making. As they built a nation. On principles other than the character and nature of God. And because they built a nation on principles other than the character and nature of God, which had been clearly laid out before them as to what it was God expected, their nation was going to fall. And we know that it did. It happened. Both peoples, both the kingdoms were conquered. The people were taken into exile. Their places of worship were destroyed. 
including the temple that was in Jerusalem, which is why uh, when the return from the exile comes, one of the first things they are trying to do is to rebuild the temple. And they disappear off the map for 2,000 years. And one of the remarkable things about the formation of the nation of Israel in 1948 is that it's the only time a nation has disappeared off the map for 2,000 years and has ever reappeared on the map. And we live in some pretty remarkable times. But we don't even realize it sometimes because it seems so normal to us. Well, Israel's been around. Most of us have been born after 1948. It's been around all our lives for many of us. But it's really, it's a relatively new thing that has happened within history, and it's unprecedented. It's never happened before. But the, one of the questions that Amos forces us to ask, and we've talked about this you know, in previous sermons, is he, he really, what he's doing through the, the book of Amos is asking the question, what makes a nation, what makes a community, what makes an individual righteous? And how does God measure righteousness? And really, this is the lesson of the plumb line. This is how God registers and measures righteousness. And I think one of the biggest obsessions that we have as people, and we struggle with this idea of God's measurement of righteousness, is because we do have a tendency as human beings to want to measure ourselves. We want to measure our lives. We want to measure our successes. We want to measure our titles. We want to measure ourselves in all kinds of different ways. Some want to measure accomplishments. Some want to measure their influence. Some want to measure their goodness. As strange as it sounds, some people take great delight in measuring their depravity. They'll tell you, you know, this is the, all the crazy and horrible things that I've done in my life. And they take pride in it. We like to measure ourselves for good or for bad. And this is one reason why works-based religion is the kind of the the default that our human fallenness always goes back to, even though we're given a, 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 sal a salvation by faith, a salvation by grace, you look at the church, for example, the church's history, people have a tendency to fall back into rules, into legalism, because we like to be able to measure, am I living in a place of righteousness, works-based faith thrives on this desire to somehow measure ourselves. My wife's family is uh, predominantly Mormon. Uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You've probably seen them run around. They say elder so-and-so on their shirts. They are a works-based faith. And uh, in fact, I think it was my mother-in-law. She was going through some uh, papers and stuff after one of the, the family members had died. And she found the book in there that they keep points based on what you do. When you go to church, you get a certain number of points every week. When you are baptized, when you baptize, allow yourself to be baptized for the dead, which is something the Mormons do, you get points. And they actually have a point system set up. It's the ultimate in measuring yourself in what you do. And we kind of laugh at that because it's so blatant, but we have a tendency to do that as, uh, ourselves. For example, we tend to measure by comparison. We do this as nations. You know, sometimes our nations, we come from many different nations uh, you know, in this church. And sometimes we'll say something like, well, maybe my nation's kind of messed up right now, but at least it's not as bad as that one. You know, we tend to, to, to do that. We tend to compare to another nation. Or we do it, you know, even, even on mundane things, like uh, just how we look at our own 
raising of kids. We have a lot of families with kids. You know, sometimes we'll sit there and we'll kind of look at how some kids are behaving and we'll go, well, my kids are crazy, but they're not as bad as those. And then the funny thing is, if you ask those parents, they're kind of looking around saying, well, you know, my kids might be crazy, but at least they have freedom to, to roam, not like these parents. You know, everyone tends to, to compare themselves and we tend to see ourselves as the hero of our own story. So whenever we compare ourselves, it's not very often that we compare ourselves and go, well, they really are better than me in every way. We, we don't tend to do that. We tend to compare ourselves and we compare ourselves with people that, that makes us feel like we are better. But the problem is that, is that all this kind of comparison is by our own standards. And these standards are then subjective, which means they're not based on any objective truth. They're just based on what we, our opinion is. And the problem with subjectivity is it doesn't tell us anything that is really solid. It's just kind of squishy because it's based in our opinion. And we can do this with so many things. And when it comes to faith, what we have a tendency to do is we look at what God has laid out as clear. And historically, humans have said, okay, God has laid out this clear path. And you go from the Old Testament all the way through to modern times. And I'm going to by my own opinion, place those on top of what God has laid out as objectively clear, objectively clear. And I'm going to put my opinions on the same level as the, as the objective truth of God. And therefore, how I see things is, and how God sees things are going to have to somehow work together in order to form my truth. And we do this with our faith. We do it with our, just our society in general. I mean, right now, we're in a massive time in our society of subjectivity, even to the point of simple biology. You, know, you hear about this all the time. This is no news to folks, right? The whole, you know, if I wake up today, I, according to some, I can wake up today and say, today I'm a woman. And I can insist that you call me by my chosen pronouns. And if you don't, it's because you're wrong. Not because I'm wrong. Because in my subjectivity, I'm a woman today, which I'm not. And I never will be. And it doesn't matter how much I could dress up or pretend, it's never going to change. But this is where we're at today. Our society is actually fighting over something as objective as to whether or not you have an X or Y chromosome or two X chromosomes. If you're a male or you're a female. And we're taking, this is where we're at. So if we can't even agree on things like this, how are we going to agree on the things of God? As a nation, as nation, as churches, as individuals. Because the truth is when it comes to righteousness, it's God's character, it's God's purposes, it's God's ways that are the objective facts of our faith. It's not our opinions of these things. And this is what God is saying through Amos. And this is the vision that he gives them in the scripture. God threatens to devastate Israel with locusts. He also threatens to devastate them with fire. And Amos intercedes and says, they're so small. Why would you do this? Don't do this to them. Actually, Amos doesn't ask why. He knows why, but he just says, have some mercy there. And then God says, okay, 
I won't destroy them. I will just simply expose them by having this line of what are the objective truths of God and ask Israel, have you built your nation based upon the objective truths of God? Now, remember, Israel was a nation where it was a theocracy. God was the center of it. And just read this again. He says, this is what he showed me. The Lord is standing by a wall that has been built true to plumb, that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line. Then the Lord said, look, I'm setting a plumb line along my people Israel. So in the vision, there's a wall that's been built true. And then he moves it over to the people of Israel and says, what do you see now? I will spare them no longer. And the point is that he's not going to bring about judgment upon Israel because of some unfathomable, mysterious reason. Israel is going to be destroyed because they set their own course towards destruction. They set their own course. They made their own choices. It's not as though the, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, had no sense of what was going on. It's not like they didn't have the law. They had the law. But when you look at their history, all the way from the, the Exodus to the time when this is taking place in Amos, they constantly gave themselves over to idol worship. They constantly were giving themselves over to injustice. They were constantly giving themselves over to sin. And their opinions about idols as they were actually building these places for idol worship in the temple... Didn't matter. Their opinions don't matter. What mattered was the character and opinion or the truth of God. Their opinions of who could be exploited and not exploited had been laid out clearly in the law. They were not to exploit anybody, be they foreigners or be they people of Israel. But they had set a course built on their own opinions against the fact of who God was. And we make the same mistake. We make the same mistakes as individuals and as churches when we think that somehow God is going to bend his, his, himself, change himself in order to meet our expectations. And we do it all the time, and the church does it all the time. And we're doing it right now. Not we, but it's happening in the world around us. Did any of you read the news where the Pope said that he thinks it's okay for the Catholic Church to bless same-sex unions, but still acknowledges that the Catholic Church sees same-sex marriage as a sin. Let that sink in for a second here. He acknowledges that same-sex marriage, according to Catholic dogma, is a sin, but that it's okay for priests to bless same-sex unions. How does that make any sense? How can you... He acknowledges it's a sin... And yet says you can bless it. You can bless a sin. Can you bless a sin? Can you say God blesses this sin? If I want to go and, and uh, take a second or third wife. And I can look back at historic precedent and say, well, God was okay with David. God was okay with Solomon. He should be okay with me. He can bless this thing. Would you guys be okay with that? Cindy wouldn't be okay with it. Would you be okay with it? Can you bless a sin? No. 
But that's what we're being told today. You can bless a sin. Can you bless a sinner? Sure. Can you bless a consistent lifestyle of sin? No. And we say, well, God of the Old Testament is mean. Jesus would never hold things to a very rigid and straight line standard. And you'd have to say, well, then read the Bible. Because look what he says. In John, the Gospel of John, you have all these great I am statements. It's, it's kind of one of the things it's known for. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. A very straightforward and firm truth. I am, look at the way he says it. I am the way, not a way. Not one of many ways. I am the way. I am the truth. Not a truth. Not your truth. The truth. I am the life. Not just one of the many places to find life. The life. No one means no one comes to the Father except by me. Pretty clear. This is a plumb line given to us by Jesus. Another place he says, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate, not a gate. I'm the gate. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Very objective, unequivocal statement of truth. And sometimes people will say, well, why does God hold this line of one way, one truth, one life? Why doesn't he just kind of let us in his love just sort of wander around and find our way to him, whatever path we take? And there's a couple reasons for that. One reason is we live in a dangerous world. You know, one of the things that people will often say, and I find this, and I hope if you ever hear people say this, you can put a, a quick end to this. People will say, well, what kind of good and loving God would allow so many bad things happen in the world? You hear this all the time. I heard listen to one guy just get all angry about, you know, how can you say to say that there's a loving God when a child has bone cancer? And then he got all self-righteous. How dare you say that about God, that he's a good God when a child can suffer from things like cancer? It's like, hello, we do not live in a perfect world. And the scripture makes that super clear. This is a broken world. It's a broken world full of broken people. And that brokenness has filtered its way through every aspect of this world. Human beings, animals, trees, everything is affected by the brokenness of the world. We don't live in a place where we can have, we can have an expectation of fairness. We don't live in a place where we have an expectation of everything is going to go my way. We live in a broken world. And on top of that, as believers, as Christians, we believe there's also an active enemy in the world. It's not some neutrally moral, neutrally, morally neutral place. It is a place where there is active enemies working toward bringing about misery in the world. We live in a dangerous world. Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. 
If you read the book of Revelations, it talks about when Satan is thrown out of heaven, which doesn't take place before Genesis. When you read the book of Revelation, it says he was overcome by the word of the testimony of the martyrs and the blood of the lamb, which was shed on the cross. And he says, woe to you on the earth now, because Satan is with you and he is angry. Woe to you. We have an angry adversary who hates is it any wonder that things in the world can be very, very twisted and wrong? So when people say, well, what kind of good God would allow bad things to happen? It's like it's a God who gave us everything that was good. And we chose, just like Israel, to build our worlds as human beings, build our cultures, build our lives, build everything in ways that were contrary to the character and nature of God. And we are reaping the harvest of that. But... The hope of Christ is that God, in his love and humility for us, entered into this. He entered into our pain. He entered into our weakness. He entered into a world which would itself turn against him and kill him, torture him and kill him. He entered into that so that we could have a way out. And you say, well, why is it just one way? You've heard this story before if you've been here for a while, but... I, I come from the northwest part of the United States, and we have a lot of forests in the northwest. We have forests that are like far bigger than the whole nation of Switzerland in one. And some of them are as like half the size of Germany in one, particularly Idaho and Oregon. We have massive forests, Washington State. That's why we think Bigfoot's out there somewhere, because it's so big that it's possible. And I used to go hiking with this friend of mine who was also named Jeff. And the other Jeff was this very fit dude. And uh, he, would, he would do all our planning and all that. And one time we were hiking out of this place. We'd gone down into this valley, spent a few days down there, and we were hiking out. And Jeff used to get impatient with this Jeff because he was way faster. So he would just take off. And uh, I would just hopefully find the way out. And one day... We were coming out in the afternoon, and it was, getting, it was starting to come toward evening. And I had long lost Jeff. He had just taken off ahead of me. And uh, I realized I was on the wrong trail. And I realized because there's these trees that had fallen across the trail. And I'm like, mm, this didn't happen yesterday. You could tell from the tree. This has been here a while. I'm on the wrong trail. So I'm like, uh-oh. Because I really didn't know where I was. I was just kind of following his direction. So I went back and realized the trail had forked. So I took the other one and got on that for a couple hours and realized this is not the right trail either. And so I went back. And you have to understand, the forest in the Pacific Northwest, people disappear in these forests. They disappear. Sometimes they're found. Sometimes Bigfoot gets them. Who knows? But they disappear. And as, as evening fell, I found another fork that I had, you know, I'd not seen because I'm like miserable. I don't, I'm out of shape. I'm just looking at the trail in front of me. I'm not paying much attention. I took this other trail and it came to my mind. This is a great sermon illustration about getting out of dangerous situations. Because at that time, I didn't want to have multiple trails, which might lead me to the place of safety. I wanted one trail, clearly marked, that was going to get me out of this mess that I was in, of being literally lost and in the dark. This is what God gives us in Christ. It's not, 
him being mean, as the world often interprets it. It's not him being exclusive in the sense of just for the sake of exclusivity of keeping people out. We live in a dangerous world and he provides us a way, a truth, and a life that will get us through this dangerous world until he returns and sets everything straight, get us through the dangerous world to a place where we are with him. Christ being the way, the truth, the life is an act of love. It's not an act of petulance or exclusivity or all the other things that people want to make it into. It is an act of love. The other reason why he gives us a straight line is because we need, he needs to protect ourselves from ourselves, protect yourself from yourself, because we have a tendency to be our own worst, worst enemy. We make choices in our lives as individuals, which left to ourselves can be terrible choices. And when we make these terrible choices, then we tend to try to get out of the consequences of those terrible choices by making more terrible choices. And we end up in our lives at some point feeling like they're at rock bottom. Nothing is going right. We can't see any way out of this. And we're in a place of deep, deep despair. We are our own worst enemy most of the time. We make things so much harder for ourselves than we need to. We do this in our relationships by being selfish. We do this in our churches by trying to put our opinions over the gospel. We do this in our societies by deviating away from what God simply says, what he wants from us, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. We do this all the time. And the problem is we sometimes do it in the name of Jesus. We will, because we have this human innate twistedness that wants to measure ourselves, wants to make sure that we can somehow stand before the God of the universe and say, you owe me heaven because of the way I acted, the way I lived. We tend to take things like faith and grace and love and relationship, and we put rules around it that squeeze out the life of it and make it into just another pharisaical works-based faith. The church did it. It's one of the reasons why the Reformation comes around. Uh, Cindy and I just spent the beginning of this week, we were down in Wittenberg, kind of following around Luther. And Luther, for sure, has his problems. You have to kind of take him within the context of his time. But one of the things that, that he states, and you read about it, it's kind of interesting from my perspective or our perspective, is the things that he is holding the church accountable for are things that are so basic to us, like, well, we're saved by faith, not by our works. That the, the cross keys of the Pope can't take supremacy over the cross of Christ. That you cannot buy yourself the right to sin. You know that they were doing that, right? You would sell, you get these little letters that gave you the right to sin. The only time you had to confess your sins was when you received the letter right before it and then at your death. And in the meantime, you can sin all you want. That was an expensive letter to get, by the way. And that money was used to build the basilica in the Vatican. And this isn't a Catholic bash. This is just history. This is what we do as human beings. We are part of that legacy too until the Reformation comes. And then we kind of go in a different direction. But we make our lives difficult. And the reason why God comes into our lives and says, listen, I want to be the Lord of your life. I want to be the one that guides you. I want to be the one that gives you the plumb line to follow. I want to be the one to whom you model your life after. It's because he loves us. Not because he's a control freak. Because he loves us. 
And in this love, what he gave us was a way for us to live lives of meaning and of significance and of depth. And he gives us this by showing us in Jesus Christ, who is the very word of God becoming flesh, a model to follow. You don't have to be a theologian to follow the model of Christ. You don't have to go into all these debates or it was creation a 24-hour day or seven epochs. You don't need to go into that. You notice the prophets never go into that? And the New Testament never goes into that? It goes into following Jesus Christ. Who is he? How does he love? How does he judge? Does Jesus ever judge anything? Sure he does. Who and how? How does he give of himself? Following the model of Jesus Christ. That's why he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. He doesn't say the law is. He doesn't say the teachings are. He says, I am. You don't have to be a theologian to look at Jesus as a model and begin to apply his life and how he lived into your life. And he does this for us because he has this desire for us to live for something more than just rules. He has a desire for us to live for something more than just trying to make sure we measure ourselves in such a way that we're satisfied with our lives being better than at least some folks. He does it so that we'll have the fullness that we can have in this existence and in eternity, the fullness of life. As Jesus said, I came that they would have life and have it fully. And to find this full life is one way, God's way. So may we seek that way as individuals, as a church, as whatever influence you have in the various nations that you represent here. May we seek that way. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Pretty simple. But it's a plumb line that determines your eternity. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for prophets like Amos, who was speaking very much to the people of his time. And yet, kind of the genius of your word is he speaks also to the people of our time. And not just other people. He speaks to us. And Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit will search us out and find those places in our lives where we're not, we're building a life that is not true to your objective reality. And Lord, we pray that we will be able to be in our societies around us, which you know, always seem to find new and just kind of remarkable ways to go off off message in ways that just a few generations ago would have been inconceivable and yet we live in them today Lord pray you help us to be not voices of anger voices that get called voices of hate not voices of intolerance but just of humble truth and Lord also know that among believers, we will sometimes tear each other apart over things which have nothing to do with 
doing justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with our God, have nothing to do with following the model of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that in these dangerous times in this dangerous world, you would give us the wisdom to not fight over stupid things or inconsequential. They're not necessarily stupid, but they don't really matter for the overall message of eternity. And may we stick to the model you gave us. May we emphasize the things that you emphasize. Hope for the things that you told us to hope for and trust in you as you told us we should. And Lord, we do pray for things going on in the world. We pray for this war to end between Russia and Ukraine in a way that is just. Lord, we pray for peace in Israel, but also in a way that is just and merciful. We pray, God, for these families that are going into, you know, who are still suffering from these earthquakes, not just in Turkey, but also in, in uh, there's one in Morocco and flood in Libya and just crazy stuff going on around the world. Syria, whose own government won't allow them to receive aid from the earthquake. God, we pray for them because they are living, they are the very people who are living in these unjust, unmerciful, ungodly societies. And help us to continue to try and do as much as we can to bring that hope and light. Understanding that we are not perfect either. And Lord, as we leave this place, as we go into the world today and tomorrow, go to our workplaces, as we hear all the opinions that people have, most of them are woefully uninformed, have no real depth to what they're saying. God, may we have the words to say. Like we're, we're told in the scripture, be able to give an answer for the hope that you have. But do so with gentleness and respect. May we be willing to speak up, but with gentleness and respect. To answer these questions, which are no grand mystery. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's not a mystery. And may we do so in such a way that help people realize their folly and turn their eyes to the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.